Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. Well, you put it into a larger context, Jason, and that is, you know, that most of the problems that we create for wildlife, you can basically attribute to, to three things. How many of us there are, human population, the human footprint, uh, our affluence, our demand for uh, increasing amounts of resources from, from this limit, limited planet, and finally, the technologies that we use to get those resources. And it's not surprising that it's often the emergence of new technologies that end up precipitating uh, problems for, for wildlife. Welcome one and all to the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 115, it's Leopold Week. Now this week, I'm joined by Stan Temple. Stan is a senior fellow at the Aldo Leopold Foundation, and he once held the same position that Aldo once had. So he is very well-versed in the life and times of Aldo Leopold. Now just as the title suggests, it is this week, Aldo Leopold Week, where we can celebrate all that Mr. Leopold has done for conservation by being the father of conservation. So listen in on what we have to talk about here, what Stan has to tell us about Leopold, how his life experiences in the Southwest led to important contributions, his mid-career move to the Midwest, and what finally led him to envision the land ethic that he wrote about in a Sand County Almanac. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome back, everyone. This is, as you heard in the introduction, a magical time of year, as this is Aldo Leopold Week, when you are hearing this and have a wonderful guest on the line today, Stan Temple, to talk about Aldo Leopold. So Stan, how are you doing today? We're doing okay. Yeah. Thanks. I, I, I thank you for joining. Uh, you know, as I got into conservation, um, you know, I'm a, as the listeners know, I'm a lifelong hunter. Uh, that was what I was brought up in. I can't say that I've been a lifelong conservationist because um, hunting was more just the hunting aspect. Like that was tr the tradition I was brought up in. But as I matured, I started to realize that, that conservation was a little bit more of the style that I wanted to incorporate into my life in addition to the hunting. And, um, you know, when you start looking into like, how, how do you start learning about conservation in the United States? Uh, it all goes, it, everyone seems to point you in the same direction, which is Aldo Leopold and a San, San County Almanac, um, which I read. And then read again, and then read again, and uh, you know it's probably been uh, seven or eight times now uh, since the first time I read it that, that I've read it. So the first question is, why 
is Leopold an important figure in conservation? Why does everyone point right back to him? Well, you're absolutely right, Jason. Um, for most people, what they know about Aldo Leopold is that he's the author of this little book, A Sand County Almanac. And to understand the importance of Leopold's life up to the point where a Sand County Almanac appears in 1949, you really have to put his life into the context of the history of conservation. And Leopold was to some extent fortunate that his life and career overlapped with the evolution of our modern American concept of conservation. He was born in 1887. So he, as a child, as a boy, experienced the end of that era of open access when Americans really didn't practice conservation, when they had this naive view that the resources of North America were inexhaustible. It was an era of you know, horrible exploitation, over-exploitation of our natural resources. So Leopold was sort of given his initial exposure to natural resources and the sort of just beginning concept of conservation as, as a boy. But as he um, sort of entered his professional life, um, he was witness and an active participant in the first manifestations of conservation in North America, which was the protectionism movement. The idea that because humans were directly responsible for all this over-exploitation, the obvious solution to the problem was to protect things from direct exploitation. And Leopold was a, a, a really active, enthusiastic participant in that movement during his early career. But he saw the uh, sort of shortcomings of that and was one of the leaders of the sort of next phase in the evolution of conservation, which was natural resource management rather than protection. And in this case, Leopold was not only an active participant, he was actually one of the, the leaders, one of the individuals that really championed this approach to how we should deal um, with nature and, and, and natural resources. And finally, in his later years, um, he broadened the scope of his contributions to conservation to become much more holistic, to think more broadly about what he called land, which today we might describe as ecosystems. It was a holistic approach of how human beings can live sustainably on the planet. And that's essentially um, where he ended up in a Sand County Almanac. And as he says in the, in the foreword to that book, he said, you know, um, that this was the end result of a life journey. And indeed, he captures in that book many of the facets of how he evolved during this scope, this sweep of conservation uh, history. And it's rather remarkable that um, Leopold's thinking when he died in, in 1948, when his book came out a year later after he died, that it's remained timeless and, and timely. And his ideas have not grown stale in this sort of modern environmentalism uh, movement. You know, aside from being in the right place at the right time, Leopold had these remarkable skills. He was a, a astute naturalist. He really understood natural history. And because of that, you know, his deep insights into how nature worked 
allowed him to think more deeply about the challenges than many people might. Uh, he was also an experimenter throughout his life. Uh, he described it as intelligent tinkering. Today, we might describe it as adaptive management. You try something, and if it doesn't work, you work around it and try to figure out how to improve it and make it work. And that process of constantly evolving was very characteristic of Leopold. So you'll find things in his early writings, for example, that are in dramatic contradiction to what he's writing later in his life because he's evolved, he's moved beyond those early, early ideas. The other thing that really made him such an iconic figure was his ability as a communicator. He was just an excellent communicator in, in all forms, whether it was writing, public speaking, teaching, uh, getting involved in politics. You know, he had this ability to speak to everyone uh, from scientists to farmers on the side of the road. So that ability to communicate was probably what set him aside from many of the other thinkers uh, during these phases of conservation history. Yeah, I, I love that you bring up the fact that when he was growing up, he was witness to exploitation of natural resources. Um, you know, that's something that while it hasn't necessarily happened um, during my lifetime, it's something that, you know, just in, in my backyard, um, I can see the remnants of, uh, you know, with the law, the wide scale clear cutting and logging that happened in Northern Pennsylvania, uh, you know, for tanneries and for paper making and, and lumber and all that. Um, uh, I've been able to, you know, just about every year I go to Cook's Forest, which, you know, state forest that we have, um, preservationist mentality there. Uh, there's no logging that's been done for decades there. Uh, but I visit specifically uh, every year the fire tower that was built to spot these wildfires that were a result of poor forest management that you know occurred at the beginning of the century. So um, it's interesting to think about how that could shape his mindset and, and how to utilize resources and you know sort of change from that preservationist mentality to we can still use the resources, we just need to use them sustainably and properly. I, I mean, are there any specific experiences that he had that really led to that change from preservationist to uh, conservationist? Well, I think you even have to go even further than that to, to his boyhood at the end of the 19th century. Uh, you got to think back then that um, as a boy, um, he was witness to the demise of the passenger pigeon, uh, the near extinction of the bison, as you mentioned, the clear cutting of most of the forests in the East and, and Midwest. So these were things that were very obvious to him um, as an outdoorsy kid who was interested in hunting and fishing and, and natural history uh, studies. And he was curious about these things. And he got encouragement, of course, uh, most of us who ended up going into conservation had some childhood mentor who uh, sort of led us down the path. And for Leopold, there were a couple of major influences that many of your listeners probably um, aren't aware of. His family was very important. His father was uh, an outstanding conservationist in his own right. He was a hunter, outdoorsman, but he instilled in his young son 
um, an ethic about how you behave in the out of doors. Uh, that initial ethic was in the context of, of hunting. He pointed out to his son that, you know, um, when you're alone in the woods and no one's looking over your shoulder, um, it has to be your moral compass that guides you to make decisions about what's right and wrong to do in your behavior. So from an early age, Leopold had um, an experience, you might say, in instilling a, a moral compass about behavior in the out of doors. At school, he was exposed to the earliest form of environmental education that we had here in the US. It was called the Nature Study Movement. It was a program that was run out of Cornell University, but it produced what we would call lesson plans for teachers that went out to schools all over the country. And their, their objective, their motive, was to provide teachers with lessons that would get kids into the out of doors, making observations of nature, and then coming back into the classroom and interpreting uh, what they had observed. So Leopold at a very early age got sort of training, you might say, in being a keen observer and interpreting what he had seen. And finally, during his childhood, you know, his mother had an important influence on him. She not only insisted that her young son be well-read, but that he could write well and insisted that he keep a, a daily journal uh, from a very young age. And Leopold kept these journals almost every day of his life, literally until the day he died, uh, recording what he had seen in nature and in many cases, you know, his interpretations of what he had, had seen. So for Leopold, you know, it was not surprising, especially with his father's interest, that he became uh, sort of wedded to the protectionism movement. Uh, and there's a wonderful letter that he writes home from boarding school back east in New Jersey. Uh, his father had written to him and said, you know, oh, once again, poachers are killing ducks on the Mississippi River. Um, Leopold grew up in Iowa on the Mississippi River, but poachers are killing ducks in the spring. And obviously a, a very irresponsible thing to do. And Leopold writes back that, you know, that basically he said, well, when my turn comes, um, I'm sure that I will basically give it my best against this and, and other matters. So from a very early age, you know, he was, he was motivated to be concerned about nature and to dedicate himself to, to trying to solve problems. And initially the solution was protectionism. So, you know, in his early career, when he, uh, when he joins the Forest Service, um, he was very much sort of embedded in the conservation by protection. And uh, that was essentially his start as a professional in conservation. So you mentioned his time as a forester. Um, I feel like you would one would gleam if they don't don't know about uh, Aldo's professional life. They would think like, oh, he was a forester. He probably worked in Wisconsin, right? Like that's what he's known for is Wisconsin. But th that's not true. It was the Southwest. Um, so, I mean, when you go from that sort of, that, I mean, those are vastly different ecological systems. How does he, how did that have, have an impact on what he would do later in his life? in the Midwest, in Wisconsin? 
Well, of course, it had a huge impact. Um, his career um, did start in forestry. Leopold wanted a career in conservation. And when he was looking for a college education, really the only degree that you could earn that had anything to do with the outdoors and, and conservation was forestry, which then was a brand new um, sort of addition to academia. And one of the only places that you could get a degree was the Yale School of Forestry. So Leopold was in one of the first classes of professionally trained American foresters at Yale. And the Yale School of Forestry had been uh, endowed by Gifford Pinchot's family. Gifford Pinchot was the first head of the US Forest Service, the first chief. And realizing that uh, if he wanted to populate this new federal agency with foresters, he needed to have them trained. So Yale got the opportunity to basically train people for Pinchot's Forest Service. And like all of his classmates, Leopold got his diploma in one hand and his contract to work for the Forest Service in the other, and literally was shipped out almost immediately to his assignment, which for Leopold ended up being in the Arizona and New Mexico territories. They weren't even states back then. So for this Midwestern kid with an Ivy League education, He's 22 years old and he suddenly shipped out to Arizona and New Mexico to take responsibility for millions of acres of newly created publicly owned wildlands. It's just an unbelievable responsibility for someone as young and you have to say inexperienced as Leopold. So there was a lot of learning on, on the job. Not only was it a new ecosystem, but of course it was an entirely new context socially uh, for him to deal with. Forest Service land had just been carved out. There were people who had lived there for, in some cases with Native Americans, millennia. There were, you know, Hispanics who had lived there for centuries. There were ranchers that had come in from Texas. There were people living on the land. These weren't areas that were devoid of humans. So in addition to the things that he learned in forestry school, he got a heavy dose of the social context in which, in this case, conservation uh, on national forest land, on publicly owned land, had to take place. So Leopold learned on the job, no question about it. But there was a tension in his early uh, career in the Forest Service that actually led to one of his most important contributions. And that was a tension between his boss, Gifford Pinchot, who had this idea that the national forests were to be places where resources of all types could be exploited, but in a science-based sustainable way. So they were places to extract timber, they were places to graze and mine and do other type of extractive activities, but do it obviously in a more responsible way than had been the case in just a few years earlier. So Leopold, obviously had that obligation with his job, but he was also aware of people like John Muir, who were arguing that these wild lands that were now publicly owned uh, should be preserved in their intact state and not subjected to any type of, of development. So Leopold was caught between these two sort of competing philosophies of what his job was supposed to be all about. And he evolved. He thought about his job in a very different way than he had been trained at Yale. Um, 
he started to increasingly think about the forest that he was responsible for as ecosystems and really started what we might think of as some of the first beginning examples of ecosystem management in the US where exploitation of resources became secondary to the, the health of the ecosystem. And he did something else quite remarkable as well. And that was that uh, his sympathies with John Muir led him to want to carve out some places on these public lands that would not be subjected uh, to, to resource extraction. And toward the end of his time in the Southwest, he was more or less responsible for the creation of the first designated wilderness area on public lands in the US with the designation of the Gila wilderness. Um, it was a remarkable thing to do. And he, again, with his skillful use of language, he justified that, um, which was somewhat contrary to Gifford Pinchot's idea. He justified it in four words. Wilderness is a resource. And in four words, he basically bridged Gifford Pinchot's focus on resources and John Muir's focus on, on wilderness preservation. So the time in the Southwest was really important to him, but it also revealed something else. And that was that his passion wasn't forestry. His passion was really wildlife. And even though he was employed as a forest service, uh, you know, forester, um, he started to make a name for himself in wildlife uh, conservation. And initially it was all about protection. It was all about, you know, we're gonna deal with those poachers. We're gonna deal with anything that threatens valuable wildlife resources, especially game species. So he was part of the early game protective movement, which, um, for better or worse, you know, was the sort of founding of wildlife conservation in the US, but it led to things like, like predator control and predator elimination. Um, but Leopold was part of that. And famously for anyone who's read a Sand County Almanac was actually a part of the early federal campaigns to get rid of, of wolves and, and cougars and, and grizzly bears in, in the Southwest. But as I said, he evolved. And it was during that time, especially uh, his years in the Forest Service that he started to realize that protectionism alone wasn't adequate, that we needed to do something better. And his attentions really start to turn sort of increasingly toward the idea of management rather than just passive protection to go to active management. So there's years in the Forest Service between 1909 um, and 1924 were really important in shaping some of Leopold's early thinking and sort of triggering this evolutionary process that ultimately led him to a Sand County Albanac and, and the land ethic. You, you know, that, that evolution that you're speaking of, that, it, it makes sense, you know, sort of that um, Monday morning quarterback style. Um, it, it makes sense because during that same time, you know, throughout the rest of the United States, uh, for example, in Pennsylvania, you know, and we had the very early stages of the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Uh, the vast majority of the work of the very few wardens that they had at that time uh, was to protect the wildlife, um, to protect the resource. They had to, the, their idea was to catch the poachers um, that were on the landscape, 
because of newly created seasons and bag limits that people weren't used to, but then also change the social mindset of the animals and, and the resource that it was. Uh, so that, that sort of mirrors, you know, his early career sort of mirrors that same sort of effort on states. And man, you want to talk about trial by fire, <laughs> you know, take, take a kid that's used to the Midwest and the, and the East and, and send them down into a territory, as, as you mentioned, um, to say, you know, hey, here you go, deal with these people that are now living on publicly owned land and um, figure out how to make it work down here. That's, that is a trial by fire for sure. What was it about that, that sort of switch to wildlife that was sort of like that major turning point and, you know, that, that move to the Midwest? What was that that made that big turning point in his sort of mindset of going from perfection or preservationist to conservationist? Well, for Leopold, you know, while he was in the Forest Service in the Southwest, he was he was definitely gaining a reputation nationally um, for his involvement in, in wildlife protection, really. And toward the um, end of his time in the Southwest, he was actually starting to show the chinks in the armor, you might say, that protectionism wasn't working. There were just too many situations in which you needed to manage things rather than just protect them. So in 1924, he gets transferred within the Forest Service to Madison, Wisconsin. Um, he sort of reached the point at which, you know, if he wanted to advance in the Forest Service, he had to leave the Southwest. So he gets transferred back to, you know, home turf in the Midwest to, to Madison, Wisconsin. And he spends a few miserable years in his Forest Service job. Uh, and his interest in wildlife is really expanding rapidly. And it was possible, I guess, because he was so miserable at his job. They really weren't giving him anything to do that was taxing his considerable intellect. So he increasingly was spending more and more time thinking and, and working on wildlife issues. And in 1928, he quit. He just said, I've had it. I've, uh, I've had it with the Forest Service uh, in no small part because his ideas about ecosystem management were not gaining traction the way he thought they should. Forest Service was still very wedded to the Gifford Pinchot idea of national forests as sources of resources. So he quits cold turkey in 1928, which is an incredibly ballsy thing to do. I mean, it's the Great Depression. He's got a wife and five kids at home. He's got a high paying, secure government job that really isn't asking him to do anything except explore his own personal interests. But he's frustrated he quits and decides, nope, I'm gonna turn my career to my real interest, which is wildlife conservation. So after he quits the Forest Service, um, he didn't have a job basically. So he basically hired himself out as a consultant. And in doing that consultant work, and because his reputation was growing as somebody who was a progressive thinker in terms of wildlife conservation, he got this interesting contract to do a survey of the eight states in the upper Midwest. Um, it was sponsored by an unusual group, the Sporting Arms and Ammunition Manufacturers Institute. Um, they were really concerned that game populations in the upper Midwest had crashed 
they were some of the most popular game species were almost gone from the landscape. White-tailed deer were scarce. Wild turkeys were gone. Waterfowl were, were scarce. Uh, even things that we think of as being abundant now uh, were scarce. They were actually captive breeding raccoons and, and releasing them. They were so scarce. But at Leopold was sent out to figure out what the problem is because it was affecting the bottom line of these corp companies that made sporting equipment. There was no hunting opportunity, so the bottom line was being affected. And there's no doubt that they expected Leopold to go out and travel around these eight states and talk to everyone from the governor down to hunters to figure out what the problem was, but they had a preconceived notion that it was going to be a failure of protection. There weren't enough game wardens, there was still too much poaching going on, the seasons were too long, bag limits were too large, that kind of frame of reference. And Leopold, after doing a three-year tour around the Midwest, surveying wildlife populations, and again, with his curious mind, figuring out what is really going on here, he came to what was a radical conclusion in 1931, but seems so obvious to us now, that the miserable status of wildlife in the Midwest had nothing to do with the failure of protection. It had everything to do with the habitat. And especially since the Midwest is almost entirely privately owned, it was mostly the condition of the habitat on privately owned lands. And that was a major turning point for, for Leopold, that transition from thinking about publicly owned wildlands to now thinking about privately owned working lands in the Midwest presented him with a totally, totally different set of challenges of how you get conservation practiced. And there was something else that happened at the same time, just as he was quitting the Forest Service and beginning his wildlife career, uh, Leopold discovered ecology. The first book that came out on animal ecology uh, was in 1928, just at the time when Leopold was making this transition. Ecology was a, a very young science at that time. And Leopold, for example, wouldn't have had a course in ecology at Yale. Um, and the early years of ecology were dominated by plant ecologists. And it wasn't until a couple of decades later that animal ecology started to emerge as a sort of a recognized discipline. And for Leopold, this was, this was an epiphany that suddenly here was the science that backed up all the things that he was figuring out by the seat of his pants, by personal experience, managing natural resources, by talking to people around the country. Here was a science that gave sort of principles to the idea of management that he was beginning to think about. So it was a really, those, those years between the Forest Service, after he quits the Forest Service, were incredibly important for forming Leopold's ideas about the science behind conservation and this idea of moving beyond protection to management. And he caps this off in 1933 by writing a book, simple title, Game Management. Game Management was the first textbook, the first reference book, if you will, that introduced to the world this transition between protectionism and management. And he laid it out using 
the principles of, of science, of ecology, to explain uh, how this could work. And most of it, of course, had to do with managing the habitat in order to influence uh, the wildlife. So the book was a huge turning point in the career of wildlife conservation. As you alluded to, Jason, until this point, if you were involved professionally in wildlife conservation, you were a game warden. You were there to enforce laws. You were there to protect animals. With Leopold's book, Game Management, it transformed the field. Suddenly there was this new profession, wildlife management, uh, that just totally changed the direction, the focus on wildlife conservation. So it was a really important time for Leopold. And of course it ended up, uh, he's still unemployed. He's, he's still basically uh, doing contract work and uh, not knowing exactly where his future was going to be. And it was a, a pivotal point really, I think in terms of his future because he could have ended up in a state or federal agency, in which case a lot of his innovative thinking, a lot of his uh, intelligent tinkering probably would have been stifled because he would have been an administrator. Uh, but something fortuitous happened, something almost unimaginable really. And that is that in 1933, the same year that his book appeared, the University of Wisconsin took a flying leap and hired this guy for a faculty position. And you have to imagine how unlikely this was. 1933, we're still at the tail end of the Great Depression. The university's budget had to be pretty tight. And here's this guy, Aldo Leopold, who has no PhD, never taught a class in his life, and represents a field, wildlife management, that had never before been in the halls of academia. And the university expended a precious faculty position on him. It was a, a, a risky investment that paid huge, huge dividends because that would be Leopold's sort of home base for the rest of, of his life. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, after his tour, after that three-year tour, uh, he comes back and says, you know, it's habitat that is the issue. It's the ecology of the area that's, that's causing this reduction in game population. And I can't, help but sort of draw a line from the dust bowl and increase in you know and a cha I guess a change in farming practices to the dust bowl to then a destruction of the ecology in those states I mean am I thinking correctly to think like that was sort of the the path that it took oh absolutely the 1920s that period just before Leopold was doing his game survey of the north central states uh, was a time of, of tremendous change on the landscape. It was the, the transition from horse power to horsepower when suddenly mechanized farming allowed farmers to do things that they'd never been capable of doing before. Um, clearing more land, being able with, with mechanized equipment to, to basically farm larger areas and convert areas that had been in sort of natural or semi-natural habitat into intensive agriculture. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It was a, a, a time uh, in which the landscape was changing rapidly and no doubt Leopold was absolutely right that it was those changes that were largely responsible for the, the virtual demise of, of many popular game species across the upper Midwest. Yeah, and unfortunately, 
while it's a little bit different concept now, it's not mechanized farm equipment that's causing the destruction of the ecology that's affecting uh, animal populations, wildlife populations, but it's that drastic change on the landscape that has happened over the last half century or so uh, in terms of urbanization and you know the sprawling suburban lifestyle that has having you know a very similar effect on a lot of different uh, wildlife species. So it, it's just it's interesting to me to sort of see what was a problem before. It's still a problem today. It's just a little bit different cause. Um, and that's not to completely exclude climate change either. That it just those that sort of parallel is, is striking to me. Well, you put it into a larger context, Jason, and that is, you know, that most of the problems that we create for wildlife, you can basically attribute to, to three things. How many of us there are, human population, the human footprint, uh, our affluence, our demand for uh, increasing amounts of resources from, from this limit, limited planet. And finally, the technologies that we use to get those resources. And it's not surprising that it's often the emergence of new technologies that end up precipitating uh, problems for, for wildlife. And, and certainly when you look at climate change, for example, the obvious implications of how many of us there are and our demand for, for resources and the technologies that we use to provide them are damaging now the entire climate of Earth. But for Leopold, you know, he was he was aware of of the roots of the problem that he was observing on the Midwest, and and it would be that challenge really that dominates his his intelligent tinkering uh, over the final fifteen years of of his his life here in the Midwest. How do you deal with this issue of conservation of not only wildlife but but soil and water and plants. How do you deal with the broad issues of land conservation on a privately owned landscape where every individual private owner to some extent has the ability to make decisions on how their land is going to be used. And for Leopold, that challenge of how do you engage private landowners? How do you get them engaged in conservation through this process that I described as intelligent tinkering led him on a series of, of experiments, if you will. And those experiments, again, sort of trace Leopold's evolution of his thinking about how do you tackle this problem? And, you know, he's, he's fresh off of a career in a government agency. So his first approach on finishing his game survey, his first approach is, by gosh, we'll make them do it by regulations. We'll do it top down. We'll force them to do the right thing on their land. And his experience during that game survey, of course, convinced him that that wasn't gonna be received very well by the, the owners of most of the land in the Midwest who were farmers. Um, so in 1933, after he's taken this faculty position at the University of Wisconsin, he has an opportunity to engage in one of the Roosevelt administration's uh, new endeavors 
the Soil Erosion Service. It's the predecessor of today's Natural Resource Conservation Service. They were looking around the country for a horribly eroded landscape that they could uh, try to sort of patch it up and, and repair it. And they focused on a watershed in Western Wisconsin, a coulee off the Mississippi River called Coon Valley as one of the worst cases of soil water erosion in the country. And they came to the University of Wisconsin and said, we'd, we'd like to support the University of Wisconsin's College of Agriculture faculty to tackle this problem and figure out how to deal with all the damage that's been done to this watershed. And Leopold's literally the new kid on the block. He's literally been on campus less than a year. And the initial contract was gonna to go to the agricultural engineering department. And it was basically gonna be, how do you build check dams? How do you do contour plowing? How do you kind of do the engineering solution to erosion? And Leopold with his persuasive communication ability said, no, no, no we should make this a much more holistic look at the entire watershed. We should be looking at the wildlife. We should be looking at the plants. We should be looking at the people. Um, we should be looking at the entire ecosystem to figure out why this problem is occurring. So Leopold became a central figure in the first watershed management project in the US here in Wisconsin, the first time that the federal government had really tried in a organized way to deal with conservation on private private lands without regulations, without, you know, really, you know, coming down hard on landowners. It involved government funds. It was, it was coercive, but no doubt it involved subsidies and incentives, but it was a gentler way of, of getting people to cooperate. And Leopold, again, the evolution figuring out that regulations weren't gonna work. He was really enthusiastic about government subsidies and incentives. He thought this was the ticket until the government subsidies and incentives came to an end and people reverted right back to their old ways. So from in a matter of a few years, going from being really enthusiastic about an approach to thinking, oh, that's not it. You know, we gotta move on. We gotta do some more thinking. It led Leopold inevitably to, uh, thinking, well, what's next? The toolbox is empty. Regulations and government subsidies were the only approaches to uh, conservation at the time. Well, maybe you could add purchasing, purchasing land, but the toolbox was pretty limited. And for Leopold, that meant that, you know, he had to think of something new. And that was where the University of Wisconsin allowed him the, the sort of academic freedom, we talk about academic freedom, but it's really important, especially for someone like Aldo Leopold to really give them the freedom uh, from the sort of mundane task to, to think broadly, uh, to be a visionary. And Leopold certainly was in all of his dealings with conservation, a visionary and was usually as visionaries often are ahead of his time in his thinking about these, these types of issues and, and how to solve them. So the University of Wisconsin was really important that it gave him the stage for the final 15 years of his life to be uh, free to think about solutions to conservation problems. But, and it also did something, it was also really important and that gave him the opportunity to train the first generation of wildlife managers who were basically now educated in Leopold's philosophy of how wildlife conservation should work. 
Yeah, so he, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but he basically just created a whole new career field through his time as a professor at the University of Wisconsin, correct? Well, yeah, I mean, the University of Wisconsin, you know, by giving him, they first it was a chair in game management. And they took, took that from his book that had been published that year, figured, oh, that's what the guy is all about, you know, so we'll give him a chair in game management. And fortuitously, they put him in the Department of Agricultural Economics, which was really kind of fortuitous because it surrounded Leopold with social scientists who definitely he interacted with and, you know, perhaps broadened his understanding of the social context in which his ideas had to take place. Uh, so, yes, it was important that they gave him this, this position and it gave him the opportunity to uh, become the father of wildlife management, as he's often referred to. But there's an interesting uh, exchange with the dean of the college who had given him this position, which, which by the way, was a, a fairly easy decision for the dean to make, because it turns out that a bunch of Leopold's hunting and bird watching buddies in Madison basically donated the funds to the university to cover his salary for five years. So it wasn't a financial risk for the college. So the dean asks Leopold to, well, what are you gonna do with this new chair in game management that we've created for you? And Leopold in his response to the dean, sort of illustrating that he's already moving on, said, I want to explore how we can basically preserve the public's interest in private land. In other words, how do you ensure that things that the public has an interest in like wildlife and water and soil and so forth, how do you do that on privately owned land? He didn't even mention wildlife or game. He's moving on to this bigger picture of what he referred to as land. Today, we might call that an ecosystem, but this more holistic view of rather than looking at soil and water and wildlife and trees and fish and all these things separately uh, as natural resources to think more holistically about how all this fits together ecologically as, a, as an ecosystem. So, so he's off, you know, he's evolved. He's moved on. He's just written the definitive book on wildlife management. And he's certainly training people in this new, new endeavor. But Leopold, in his tinkering, is moving in the direction of thinking much more holistically about conservation uh, than just game or, or even, even wildlife. So he's got this position. And uh, it's paid for for five years by contributions from his friends in Madison. Um, and at the end of five years, um, something remarkable happened that, again, was a really significant turning point in Leopold's life. And that was that he was offered the position to be the head of the newly created biological survey, the U.S. Biological Survey, which was the forerunner of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Well, for Leopold, you know, the father of wildlife management, this was the top wildlife job in the country. And... Uh, you have to imagine there was some really serious thinking about, do I really want to take an administrative job in Washington or am I happy here at the university? And the university by this time had figured that this risky investment had, had already paid off and wanted to keep Leopold. So they did something 
today we call it a retention package, but they did something to keep him on the faculty. And they said, here's the deal. If you stay, we'll give you your own department and you can start issuing your own degrees in this new field of wildlife management. So with that incentive, Leopold became a one-man department. He's no longer in the basement of, of agricultural economics, but he became his own department and he stayed at the university uh, for, for the final decade of his, of his life. So you've alluded to this idea of, of what he called land, what we would call ecology. Um, he developed what he writes about in a Sand County Almanac, what he calls the land ethic, um, which to, to sort of probably misquote, but quote a current Midwesterner, um, Doug Duran, you know, it, it's not our land, it's just our turn. Um, he's sort of pulling that from that sort of land ethic. What, I mean, what was it that really led him to develop his thoughts on the land ethic and then be able to train all these new professionals in his brand new department? Well, I think the land ethic was the outcome of his frustration with all of the tools in the toolbox of conservation. Um, and uh, again, you know, Leopold is very quotable. And uh, in one of his quotes, he said, it's, it's hard to make a man by pressure of law or money do a thing that does not spring naturally from his own sense of right and wrong. And what he's getting at here is that, sure, you can pass all the laws you want. People will not be inclined to comply easily with them unless they have the inclination to think that, yep, that's the right thing to do. You can offer all the subsidies and incentives that you want, and they'll only really use those in a productive way if they figure that, you know, I'm going to use these in, in the right way. So Leopold's evolution toward an ethical approach to conservation was all part and parcel of his frustrations in getting private landowners to practice conservation. And he finally does arrive at this idea that it has to be all about ethics. It all has to be all about your own personal sense of what's right and wrong, your own moral compass, really. And if you have that right ethic, if your moral compass is, uh, is functioning, you know, you will always be inclined to do the right thing. And what Leopold recognized was that at least when he was coming up with these ideas in the 1930s and 1940s, is that there was no ecological ethic. There was no land, there was no ethic that governed how people dealt with, with, with land, living on, on the land. And uh, so it left for Leopold to really develop this idea. And what he called the land ethic was built very skillfully on people's understanding of what it means to live in a community. We all understand that we live in a human community. And if that human community is going to function properly and remain healthy, there has to be a common set of, of values that we all adhere to, things that we accept are inherently right and wrong to do within that community of human beings. And you know, you can look to uh, the Ten Commandments and other sort of attempts to summarize what those rules of living in a community are all about. 
But for Leopold, now having been turned on to ecology, he realized that just in the same way that we live in a human community, we also live in an ecological community. And in the same way that everyone understands that there has to be a set of commonly shared ethical principles for living in a human community, there has to be a similar set of guidelines for living in an ecological community. And that's what Leopold's land ethic was all about. It was basically, you know, he, again, his wonderful ability at writing and communicating, uh, he described this as a way to solve, to tackle the oldest task in human history. A wonderful turn of phrase. I've used that as the title for many a talk. Um, and most people kind of scratch their head and think, what is the oldest task in human history? And Leopold defined it succinctly. He said, it's to live on a piece of land without spoiling it. Or in a more global context, to live on planet Earth without spoiling it. It was all about sustainability. And for Leopold, the, the way to approach the oldest task in human history was through ethics, through his land ethic. And that's where he left things. Um, he introduced the land ethic to the world in 1949 in, in his posthumous book, The Sand County Almanac. And um, well, I don't think there's any other way to say it, that The Sand County Almanac was not a hit. It was not a bestseller at all. In fact, the manuscript had been rejected by four or five different publishers who all said the same thing. We don't think there's any readership for this type of book. One publisher even said, you know, well, you know, we like the first half of the book, all those kind of nature stories. Those are nice. But the second half of the book, all that ecological and ethical stuff, uh, nobody's going to understand. Oxford University Press, again, took a gamble on Leopold, published the book, and the other publishers were absolutely right. It hardly sold at all through the 50s, even in the early, in fact, it went out of print briefly in 1960 because they finally, after a decade, they finally exhausted the first printing. Uh, Leopold, as I said, was ahead of his time and his idea of a land ethic didn't resonate in the immediate post-war years in the US. It wasn't until the mid and late 1960s with the emergence of the modern environmental movement that suddenly these ideas that Leopold had been writing about 20 years earlier, suddenly now there was an audience out there ready to read that ecological, ethical, philosophical stuff and understand the importance of it, that Leopold's ideas and his book finally you know, gained readership and took off. And Oxford University Press, I, you could say it was brilliant marketing and the fact that they caught on to the modern environmental movement's need for this type of book, or it was just plain dumb luck that they put out a paperback edition in 1966. And that was a turning point. It just coincided perfectly with the modern environmental movement and people who were willing to and able to read this book and understand what Leopold was all about. And for Leopold's idea of the ethics of our relationship with nature to be the, the moral underpinnings really of the modern environmental movement. Yeah, it's, you look at, you, if you look at his entire career, everything was, as you said, almost like ahead of his time, right? Like he was the first to 
to start thinking a certain way. He was the first to sort of switch from that preservationist to conservationist idea. He was, um, you know, the first to take a university teaching position and, and you know, create eventually his own department out of it um, with all his new ideas. So it just falls right in line with the ideas that he's going to write about aren't going to be appreciated during his time. Um, and obviously, obviously, if it wasn't printed in, until after his death, obviously not during his time, but even, you know, right after his life, it wasn't appreciated that he was so ahead of his time and thinking that it took more, it took more people to understand the importance later, as you said, with the environmental movement, being able to, I'm sure, more educated people then, right, a, a greater percentage of that, of the people were educated, going to college, things of that nature, um, and then seeing the effects on the landscape of our mass modernization, you know, in the post-war period and, and having concerns with that. Um, it's just, it, it's always amazing to me every time that um, I come across something new to me about Leopold that, you know, it wasn't understood or appreciated <laughs> at, at the time that 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 information was coming out, that he was putting that information out. It's always much well into the future uh, that that concept sort of starts really taking hold. Well, I think that's right. And that's why, you know, he's easily described as a visionary, somebody who could perhaps uh, more clearly than most of us uh, see the, the, the way forward. And it, it's really quite remarkable when you go back and look at Leopold's writings, which are vast, it's not just a Sand County Almanac. He was cranking out, you know, essays and articles, you know, at a furious rate, especially during his time at the University of Wisconsin when he had that academic freedom to explore his ideas fully. And when you go back and you read these things and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, here this guy is thinking about things that sound so contemporary today and he's thinking about them 75, 80, 80 years ago and writing clearly expressing, you know, things that we think of as being, um, you know, the, the topics of, of today. And that's really sort of, I think Leopold's place in history is going to be that he has probably left us with such a timeless and timely philosophy about our relationship with nature that he's never going to get sort of out of vogue. People are always going to be looking to him for, uh, for, for guidance. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that, that resonates with me the most about his land ethic is, you know, as you mentioned, you know, people understand that we are a part of a human community. Uh, not many people, uh, when you sort of look at all the people in the world, realize that we are part of a nature community. You know, what, what we do affects the ecology and affects wild animals. What wild animals do, uh, you know, can affect us, that we need to learn to live uh, in harmony and realize that our actions have consequences outside of just what I, you know, what we want as humans. We need to um, live ethically, you know, on the, the broad scale of earth or else, you know, things aren't going to look too good for us <laughs> at some point. Well, Leopold, you know, he came up with this idea at the end of his, toward the end of his life. And as he writes about it, um, he, he points out something 
really important. And again, you know, Leopold's uh, wonderful insight. Talking about the land ethic, he said, you know, nothing so important as an ethic is ever written. It evolves in the minds of a thinking community. That was in the essay, uh, The Land Ethic in a Sand County Almanac. But he's basically pointing out to us that, you know, I can't force a land ethic on you. I can't make you change the ethics of how you behave on planet Earth. It has to evolve in the minds, as he said, of a thinking community. Well, you know, the environmentalism movement has created that thinking community that's expanding the idea of the ethics of our relationship with nature. But Leopold also was a realist in which thinking about how is this evolution going to take place, he points out that this isn't going to happen quickly. He uses an analogy. He said, it's, it's, it's taken thousands of years for us to evolve an ethic of how we treat each other as human beings. And we're still not doing that particularly well. And he said, it'll probably take us equally as long to develop a functioning ethic about how we deal with the rest of, of nature. So he realizes, you know, this is, this is a long haul. It's not something that's going to, to change overnight. So Stan, I, we're pushing up on time a little bit and um, I, don't, I don't wanna take too much of your time. So let's, I, I wanna give you a little bit of space to just sort of give us your overall impression or just sort of your biggest thoughts about Leopold and, and his impact on conservation. Like what is something that we haven't talked about or you really, maybe we have talked about it and you just really wanna hammer it home for people so that they really understand the importance of Leopold's evolution. Well, I think Leopold stands as an example of the type of individual that you should really pay attention to. And you know, every generation has people like this who are visionaries, who seem to have what many would consider an idealistic uh, view of the future, but one that's really important to, uh, to pursue. So I think one of the things that has, has been troubling to me really is that we haven't seen the emergence of another Aldo Leopold. We haven't seen anybody who has quite the broad and deep impact that he had during his life. You can point to people who clearly had an impact. You can point to the Rachel Carsons of the world and so on, who clearly had an impact, but it wasn't as broad and deep as, as Leopold's had been. So I'm, you know, thinking about all the Leopold, admittedly, I think he's gonna last. I don't think he's gonna get old, but I'm anxious to see who's next up, who's going to, to take the baton and move forward. And it, it's a question, Jason, that, that we often get asked at the Aldo Leopold Foundation, where, I, where I'm a senior fellow, uh, where you know, people come to basically learn about Aldo Leopold's life and legacy. And one of the questions that we're often asked is, well, you know, okay, Leopold's been you know, dead for 80 years now. Um, is his, are his ideas still, still worth considering? 
and I think they are, as we've as we've discussed, and sort of going along with that, in terms of what we laid out as a, an evolutionary history of conservation, another question people ask is, okay, we're in the environmentalism phase of evolution of conservation, what's next? And I always think, you know, what's next is what Leopold left us, ethics. It's expanding the ethics of our relationship with nature and getting that to be more widespread, that it has more of an impact on the way we behave individually and collectively on planet Earth. So I think Leopold's best days maybe are still ahead when his land ethic really takes hold and, and we adopt it uh, as a way to, as Leopold said, tackle the oldest task in human history, to live on this planet without spoiling it. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm right there with you waiting uh, for that sort of next big impact uh, person to, to jump out and, and grab hold of, of our minds and lead us into that next little next phase. Um, I would like to, I would like to think maybe it's me, but I'm not going to hold myself up to that high of a standard quite yet. <laughs> so, um, but th Stan, thank you for joining us. Um, thanks for talking about Leopold. I really appreciate it. Um, it's, you know, he's someone that uh, I am so very interested in. And as we've talked about this whole time has had such a huge impact on what conservation is today and, and how we view nature um, that I just, I can't get enough of sharing uh, his words, as you mentioned, he's very quotable. So thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Sure. And, and you know, you should definitely encourage uh, people if they want to find out more about Aldo Leopold, they can uh, visit the Aldo Leopold Foundation's website, which is very easy. It's aldoleopold.org uh, to learn more about uh, Leopold's ideas and his life. And especially since you're going to be uh, airing this podcast during Leopold Week, which is an annual um, event that, that tries to basically expose more people to Leopold's ideas. And, and you all, it seems like everything has a national holiday these days, right? Chocolate, wine, um, all that stuff. Uh, this is one that I can get behind, you know, a, a week of celebrating the, the works of all the Leopold. And um, if even just one more person, uh, you know, gets interested in him and, and what he uh, has to offer, uh, I think that's going to be a win for uh, the conservation community. I think you're right. All right. Thank thanks. you, Santa. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Before we keep going, a real quick question for you. Are you concerned with urban sprawl? Are you concerned with the threat of our increased human presence as put on wildlife and wild spaces? If so, an easy next step for you to try to help with this situation is to visit our Patreon page and become a monthly supporter. If you like this podcast, if you would like to help form a new nonprofit that helps combat and mitigate the effects of urbanization, visit patreon.com slash conserve the wild. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash conserve the wild. Go visit today and become a sponsor.
that will do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Stan for coming on to talk about Aldo. Uh, he really is one of my academic heroes. You know, one of those guys that that really put some teeth into research uh, to the point where he literally started a whole new career field uh, for people and and uh, something that that you can study and learn about and really make a positive impact to our world. You know, um, it's it said that whenever you enter the world of conservation and ecology. You know, you're you're sort of cursed with looking at all the wrongs in the world, right? Like you can see, you see the scars uh, of the natural world that no one else notices. And while that can be depressing, uh, what we can take from Aldo is that we can turn that that sort of depressing view into something positive. Figuring out what we can do to help, how we can help the natural world and then put those plans into actions. He had such an amazing life that it is worth celebrating. So if you do nothing else to celebrate Aldo this week, the first week of March in 2022, learn a little bit more about Aldo. Get out and start studying the natural world. The best way to study the natural world is to just very simply experience it. Notice what is going on. Take a look at the wildlife that you see even just outside your window on a daily basis. Keep a journal. These are very simple things you can do that you don't need to be an ecologist or a wildlife biologist to participate in. So as always, but even more so this week, I implore you, please get outside, take someone with you, and stay wild.